Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oklahoma and Texas are a year and a half away from competing in the SEC, beginning with the 2024 college football season, and we still don't know what the SEC's schedule format will look like, but we should find out in a matter of just about two months. Welcome back to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside John Adams, and here we are, John, two months away, well, less than two months away, actually, from the SEC spring meetings in Destin. And at the spring meetings last year, it was dominated by talk of the future schedule format for the SEC. No decision was reached. One thing we learned a year ago was that the SEC is going to move away from divisions and have one cohesive 16-team conference when Oklahoma and Texas join. But there was debate still between an eight-game schedule model and a nine-game schedule model. Well, here we are now 10 months later. As we approach spring meetings this year, where we expect a resolution sometime around that Memorial Day holiday, and we still don't have a schedule format, but I think we're about, like I said, less than 60 days away from learning the verdict. Does this surprise you, John, that there's even still conversation and debate and support within some schools in this conference for an eight-game schedule model, or is that a predictable self-preservation type argument for uh, you know certain schools that maybe are trying to uh, get to seven and five. When I first think about it, I always thought that, well, nine games, I mean, you should play 10 SEC games. But then I'm not having to coach in those games, and that does make a difference. To me, it's a no-brainer that you would play more SEC games. You're expanding the conference. My gosh, you're going to have a 16-team league and you only play eight conference games seems ridiculous. But I'm sure there are some coaches who would would be just fine and fine with a seven game SEC schedule, or dare I say, a six game SEC schedule. I think if you told uh, Mark Stoops at Kentucky that you can decide how many games, conference games. The teams play. It's all up to you. You're commissioner for a day. And he might say, well, let's go with six. That's a, that's a good number. And and then we can bring in teams from all over the country and have a lot of uh, attractive non-conference games like Kentucky versus Miami of Ohio or Kentucky versus Toledo or Kentucky versus Ball State or maybe Akron. Yeah, and, and we know Kentucky has positioned itself as one of the supporters of sticking with an eight-game conference <laughs> schedule. Uh, big big surprise there, right? South Carolina has been one that has mentioned it, it supports an eight-game conference schedule. You would think maybe the divide here would be between the haves and the have-nots in the conference. I'm not convinced, though, John, that it's that simple. 
we've heard Eli Drinkwitz, the Missouri coach, say loudly and publicly, Missouri wants a nine-game conference schedule. You would think if you're looking at it on paper, maybe Missouri would be one of those that would want to stick to eight conference games. No, Missouri wants nine. And although we've not heard any of the so-called top dogs in this conference say it publicly, I think quietly there might be one or two of those teams on the top end of this conference that are maybe sheepishly saying behind closed doors, uh, actually, we think maybe we'd rather stay with with eight <laughs> conference games. And you wonder about Alabama, John, after the, the recent grumbling from Nick Saban about the proposed rivals that Alabama would have to play every year in a nine-game conference schedule. Nick Saban said the proposal would have Alabama playing LSU, Auburn, and Tennessee every year in a nine-game schedule. Now, he did not say publicly that Alabama would prefer staying at an eight-game conference schedule. But if you're reading in between the lines, kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? If, if Nick Saban doesn't want to play this, this, this group of rivals that's been proposed to him under a nine-game schedule, would he rather just stick to eight games despite Saban saying for years that he wanted the SEC to increase its its number from eight to nine? Well, I think Nick Saban would look at it much differently if Auburn were coached by Brian Harson and LSU was coached by Ed Orgeron. Tennessee was coached by Jeremy Pruitt. I think if he was told those were his three rivalry games and he would say something like, well, that's going to be really tough sledding, but I think we can live with it because I think it's best for the conference to do this. And then he would go off alone and just laugh hysterically at the good fortune that has come his way. You know, with the four-team college football playoff, I understood the SEC's desire to stay at eight conference games. Maybe I didn't like it as a someone who observes and covers and, and likes the sport, but I understood it. To make the four-team playoff, for the most part, it was about avoiding losses. That's how you got in the playoff, lose the fewest games possible. Now that the playoff is going to 12 teams, though, in 2024, it would seem to make a lot more sense to go to nine conference games because you're going to have your one automatic qualifier. Whoever wins the SEC is going to get an auto bid. And then you're going to be eligible for up to six at-large bids. You know, in a 12-team playoff, it's going to be six auto bids, six at-large. Now, the SEC is not going to snag all six at-large bids, but you could see in a given year, they could get two, three, my gosh, maybe even four at-large bids. But some of that has to be built around strength of schedule, right? Like, I have to think the selection committee going forward as you expand the playoff from four to 12 teams, some of those debates between who's your last at-large team in, I have to think strength of schedule is going to come into play. And not only that, but I think seeding becomes even more important in a 12-team playoff than it is in a four-team playoff. We know those first-round games, the better-seeded teams will be hosting those games. So again, much like the NCAA tournament in basketball, where they factor in your strength of schedule, your net ranking, however they determine that, I have to think strength of schedule really is going to matter when it comes to seeding and selection for this 12-team playoff. So it seems a little short-sighted to me to be considering sticking with eight conference games in the SEC. I agree with that, Blake. I think coaches, though, are so skeptical and so, well, paranoid in general that they don't 
they don't trust that process. They don't trust the worth that that will be put on a schedule. The record speaks for itself. If you're if you're ten and two in the country's top conference, chances are you're in the playoff, and uh, or and certainly at eleven and one. But see, they I think they would worry about nine and three. Worry about nine and three against a, a rigorous schedule. They would say, "Can we trust these selection committee people to to you know give the proper uh, weight to our to our non to our tough schedule?" I just think they're real. They're worried about that, and, and I think uh, Nick Saban probably looks at it that way. I really do. Uh, what I think I would be worried about, though, John, is being nine and three as an SEC team that played an eight-game conference schedule, and then having a nine and three Big Ten team that played nine conference games and also played a marquee Power Five opponent in the non-conference. So, so ten of their twelve games being against real opponents, and it comes down to a nine and three SEC or a nine and three Big Ten for that final spot. Boy, I think you're you're, you're putting yourself in a tough position. Um, you know, if you're letting the Big Big Ten play nine conference games and you're only playing eight, knowing that the Big Ten also plays a marquee non-conference games, yeah, I, I just think that, that that could backfire. And it really almost seems to be built around, you know, those struggling coaches protecting them and, and creating maybe a little bit more of a manageable schedule, only having eight conference games. But I don't think you should be determining <laughs> – your conference scheduling based on, you know, your weaker coaches in the league and job preservation. I think the best path to getting the most teams in the playoff is to play a robust schedule and uh, know that if your teams are nine and three or better playing a robust schedule, you, you just, you know, stand a really, really strong chance of, of getting in the playoff. I think playing a nine game conference schedule, I don't think we'd see nine and three SEC teams miss out on playoff selection very often. That's a really good point, Blake. And I think it create in the selection committee members' minds, I think they would look at the SEC as um, trying to manipulate its way into the playoff. Like we're going to, yeah, we'll just play eight games and we'll, we'll finagle our way into the playoffs. I mean, you're supposed to be the premier conference in the country and everybody Everybody realizes that with four consecutive national championships um, that the SEC is of that statue. But I, I really think that people would say, well, if you're so good, why do you just play eight, eight games? I think it could be – I really think it could be where the committee members wouldn't just look at the record and look evaluate all this stuff and crunch all the numbers, but in the back of their minds would be, well, the SEC, all it had to do was schedule more conference games. It gets more teams. Instead, it said, no, we'll just stay with eight. I think it could hurt the SEC. And we haven't heard Greg Sankey say publicly which one he prefers. He's he's said that they're going away from divisions regardless. He's said that the goal, regardless of schedule format, will be to cycle teams through each other's campuses uh, more regularly. And regardless of which one they go with, the eight-game model or the nine-game model, uh, that will happen. Teams will be cycling through each other's campuses more frequently, and the models are set up 
So you would go, you, you would play each team in your conference at a minimum once every two years. Uh, and then in a nine game model, you'd have three rivals in an eight game model. You'd have only one rival that you'd play every year. And, and so we haven't heard Sankey, you know, log support for one model of the, over the other, but I would think privately, John, he would prefer the nine game conference model, particularly with the playoff expanding to 12 teams. If it's still a four team playoff, I'm not sure he'd want that in a 12 team. I think he probably does. Uh, I think it probably helps with, with television negotiations um, to, to try to squeeze a little bit more out of, out of Disney slash ESPN. I don't know that you're going to totally transform that deal just based on adding one conference game to your schedule, but I would think you'd be able to squeeze a little bit more out of that deal. And, and again, Greg Sankey's not worried about keeping the jobs for seven and five coaches uh, who, who struggled against the, the rigors of a nine-game conference schedule. Greg Sankey's worried about putting as, many, as much money in the conference's coffers as possible that then is distributed out to the schools. And he's worried about winning championships and putting as many teams in the playoff as possible. And, and again, I, I think the, the nine game conference schedule is the way to go. And if you want to put butts in the seats, most sec schools do a pretty good job of that anyway. But if you're an athletic director, I think you probably like the idea of a nine game conference schedule too. Even if your coach maybe doesn't like it as much. I think a lot of ADs, you give them truth serum, I think they want more conference games. I think they want nine, most of them. However, if you're at Alabama and you're the AD, you're not calling the shots when it comes to football. Correct. And and, and you bring up a good point there because uh, there's uh, all the different SEC commissioners I've dealt with and known through the years, seems like there have been a hundred of them, not really, but it, that's how they have they rarely have negotiated through the media uh they do it uh with with university presidents and ADs and they talk to them and i don't think for the most part they've been heavy handed uh, they're hired by the SEC uh by the the various schools they select the commissioner and he works at their behest but I think they trust his opinions. That's how it's usually worked in my mind. We hired this guy. We the chancellors and presidents they they trust whoever the commissioner is to know what's best for the league, and they need to trust him. And that's usually what they do. So he just says, "Here's what I think would be best for us on a conference call," and and, and I think that's what I think that's what Sankey would say is is just what you just said that. Uh, yeah, we'd be better off with the nine-game schedule. I think he can see the big picture. He can see the money picture. Uh, coaches, their focus is a little more narrow. And so I think, yeah, I would just be really surprised if it turned out the SEC only had a an eight-game conference schedule after this expansion, wouldn't you? I would, and, and 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 some of it I think comes down to ego. We know how much the SEC likes to to thump its chest, and um, when you when you look at the the landscape of college football, the Big Ten plays nine, the Pac-12 plays nine conference games, the Big Twelve plays nine conference games. Now the ACC has decided it's staying at eight, but does the SEC 
<laughs> really want to be mentioned in in that breath. No, they they want the debate to surround around you know SEC versus Big Ten sure. every every year. How many how many bids are each of these two big dogs going to get? It's not the Power Five; it's the Power Two. I think that's where the SEC wants to the conversation to remain. Ultimately, I think they'd like it to be a Power One, but uh, they they can they can live going toe to toe with the Big Ten every year. I don't think you want to be viewed um you know as being chicken basically and <laughs> again when it, it's much different when we're talking about a four-team playoff four-team playoff if you're an sec team that's undefeated of course you're going to get in if you're an sec team that's 12 and one you're you're very likely going to get in but what we're talking about going forward you know are these other conferences aside from the acc playing nine conference games and you could be left debating between who gets the final at-large spot Nine and three team from Conference X that's playing nine conference games, or nine and three team from Conference Y that's playing eight, um, and and I, I just think that the selection committee has a lot of power here to hold you accountable for your schedule, and and for how many conference games you're playing. Well, also Blake, I mean, do you as the commissioner of the SEC, do you want to? You're trying to negotiate this colossal deal with ESPN. Um, to, you know, to televise your games. I mean, you want to go to them and say, hey, we're going to keep our uh, keep our eight-game eight conference schedule. You got to feel pretty good about that. And then there's a lot of dead air. Because if you're paying all these millions of dollars, you just don't want to watch Auburn play Austin P or Tennessee play Tennessee Martin or Chattanooga or somebody. You want is, I mean, if you if you were the network and you could say, here's how it's going to be. If the network, if ESPN could schedule the games, it might have a, it might go with the ten. It, it would rather have all SEC all the time. And again, we get back to that much repeated slogan, vague though it might be, the SEC just means more. But no, we're not going to add more conference games. You're you're violating your promo. Yeah, they're they're going to be mocked, and and I think deservedly so. Uh, if in two months' time, and and Destin, uh, they decide to to keep it, we'll have games. a race to see which one of us can mock it first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, me, I you, and, start- a, and about a hundred other columnists out there. There are a hundred columnists covering our sport. However many there are covering college football, they'll be they'll be racing to be first in line to mock the SEC for being too chicken to go from eight conference games to to nine. Now, w- one thing you hear murmurs of John is that something to sweeten the pot a little bit and maybe get this thing across the finish line for nine conference games would be to drop the requirement to play a Power 5 non-conference game. Now, we don't know that for sure, but there has been some murmurs, some whispers about that that could go away, that requirement to get this nine-game conference schedule across the finish line. Uh, Now, we know some schools would still play a Power 5 non-conference opponent. Um, Florida, Florida State, can't imagine that's going anywhere uh, regardless of whether that requirement goes away they're still going to play that and and there's there's many other schools that would continue to play a marquee non-conference game but i suspect if that requirement went away 
you'd probably have a handful of SEC schools that would embrace that and say, okay, we'll schedule our nine conference games, and then we got three cupcakes. My question to you, if your two options were an eight-game conference schedule with a requirement to play a non-conference Power Five or a nine-game conference schedule and you drop that requirement, which one would which one do you like better? Which one would you choose? Now I know you don't like dropping that requirement. You would say keep that requirement on the books, I'm sure. But if those were the two options, which one would you would you embrace? Well, I would drop the requirement. I go back to the COVID season of 2020. I really look forward to those Saturdays uh, more so than any other season because you know you were you're getting to watch an SEC game. And, and I think fans looked at it the same way because you're familiar with these teams. You're familiar with their fans. You're familiar with their tradition, their mascots, their history. And I think that really adds something. There's a, there's a commonality there that, that the fans in the SEC really appreciate. Right, and let's face it, when, you, when a team is winning a championship from this conference, you often hear the chant, SEC. So as much as these schools pull pull against each other when they're when they're paired off, they kind of come together a lot of times when they're pitted against the outside world of college football. So, yeah, I, I think that would be much preferable. I, I really enjoy that season. If you start talking about dropping requirements, and you get that requirement dropped, I think there's going to be some people that say. Why do you have to win six games to qualify for a bowl? If you play an SEC schedule and you win five games, isn't that worthy of a bowl game? So if you go five and seven, yeah, drop that requirement and let us play in a bowl game. I think there would be some lobbying for that, at least from a few coaches. I won't mention any names, but you know who they are. I would agree with you. If those, if those the, the two, two choices are to play eight conference games and keep the requirement or to play nine and drop the requirement, I, I like the nine game, even if you have to drop you know, the requirement to play a Power 5 non-conference. Because like I said, I think, I think many of the schools will still continue to play a Power 5 non-conference game. And the schools that don't, how much is really lost by that? You know, I, I look at a couple games last season, you know, and, and I'm not saying Mississippi State or Ole Miss would definitively be among the teams that would embrace an option to drop a, a Power 5 non-conference game, but let's, let's say hypothetically they would be. You know, Mississippi State last year played Arizona in the non-conference in a late-night game. I think I was <laughs> – I tried to stay awake for it, and I think I'd fallen asleep by, by halftime. Uh, Ole Miss played Georgia Tech in a non-conference game. If the option is that we can either have Mississippi State playing in a 10.30 Eastern time kickoff against Arizona, uh, or we could have Mississippi State playing an extra conference game uh, against the likes of, oh, I don't know, uh, let's say Texas, once they're in the in the league here. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather have Mississippi State versus Texas than Mississippi State versus Arizona. If the choice is between Ole Miss playing an extra conference game, let's say Tennessee, versus playing Georgia Tech, 
it's an easy choice. I'd rather see the nine game conference schedule and and see Ole Miss play Tennessee. So yeah, I, I think ideally we'd see most of these teams still play a power five non-conference game. You really reveal yourself as thinking you're a, a weakling. <laughs> if you're among those that, that embrace that requirement, you, you show your hand, you show who you think you are, but if you want to do that, okay, at least you still got to play nine conference games. We can live without Ole Miss, Georgia tech. I'd rather have Ole Miss, Tennessee. Let's face it. Rivalry is a big part of, uh, college football and some of those rivalries have been lost through the years so I would like to try and maintain as many as possible but let's just say uh Ole Miss uh, LSU that's that's a long-standing rivalry the way that the build-up for the game and when the fans go into the stadium or when they turn on their television there is an anticipation about that matchup regardless of the records because it's still Ole Miss versus LSU or Auburn versus Tennessee. And that's just so different than if you're, if it's Ole Miss versus Arizona, even if those teams have good records. John, I want to change gears and, and leave the, uh, the schedule behind here. We are first and foremost, a, a football podcast. It's in the name, but uh, had a, a national champion, from the SEC uh, this this past weekend, LSU women's basketball winning the national title and, and Kim Mulkey's second season. And that got me thinking about kind of the bigger picture at LSU and how instrumental the arrival of athletic director Scott Woodward has been. You look at the way LSU's athletic department is constructed now. You have Brian Kelly as its football coach. That's a Scott Woodward hire. Matt McMahon has finished his first season as LSU men's basketball coach. Obviously, the the jury's out on him. He inherited a, a terrible situation after the Will Wade mess, so we'll reserve judgment on that front. Uh, but Scott Woodward knocked it out of the park with Kim Mulkey, as we all knew he would. That was you know, sometimes these hires, you don't know how they're going to go. Uh, LSU hiring Kim Mulkey. You knew how that one was going to go. This this title coming in year two maybe is a, a little quicker than we would have expected it, but nobody uh, that knows anything about women's basketball is surprised to see Kim Mulkey cutting down nets at LSU. Uh, and then Scott Woodward has hired Jay Johnson uh, as LSU's baseball coach, and and LSU has um, you know arguably the the top baseball team in the land. Um, you're very familiar with with LSU athletics and, and some of the problems it's had over the years, including in its leadership posts. Oftentimes we talk about the hires of coaches and how big they are, John, but boy, I think LSU is an example right now that it does start at the top in, in many cases. And, um, you know, the athletic directors, oftentimes the person pulling the string on on these hires that shape your athletic department and I think LSU's in in very very good shape across the board uh, with with Scott Woodward and some of the hires he's he's made there and and you can see it and the proof is in the pudding. We've talked about this for before, but the coaches are what makes all the difference. Now you can certainly you can certainly support them to a great degree with NIL money. Now I think that's a big factor too. But if you get the best coaches, you're more apt to get the best NIL deal. Because when you get a name coach, you get Brian Kelly, you hire him away from Notre Dame. 
that galvanizes the fan base. I mean, you could go out and hire Tennessee hired Josh Heupel in football. Nobody knew how good Josh Heupel would be. It's turned out he's done a terrific job. He's one of the lead offensive coaches in the country, but nobody, nobody knew that going in. But when you hire Brian Kelly away from Notre Dame, you know, going in, well, this guy's going to win. We're going to support him and we're going to support him through NIL money. So everything kind of just that, that ups the expectations even more. Uh, you started by mentioning Kim Mulkey winning a national championship uh, in women's basketball in just her second season. At her introductory press conference, she talked about, she said, yeah, we've got Final Four banners up there. That's not what we're going for. Right up front, said, we're going for it. We want to hang a national championship banner. And then she hit the brakes a little bit and says, I don't expect that to happen overnight. But fans did. And she did do it overnight, pretty much. Just as Brian Kelly flipped this uh, the football program pretty quickly in one season, got LSU in a championship game. Just as Josh Heupel uh, did in only two seasons, taking Tennessee from three and seven to eleven and two. And man, we've talked about this before, but that puts pressure on everybody else. You just can't talk about. Well, give us time to to change the culture. We've got to change the culture. We've got to lay the foundation. And then, then you will see, then you'll get your rewards. Kim Mulkey just goes in and just goes in and starts winning. <laughs> yeah. 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 Brian Kelly and Kim Mulkey showed just how quickly you can establish your culture and lay the foundation. You can do it um, in, in one year's time, in a matter of months, Really, I mean, we saw Brian Kelly do it with LSU football. Uh, now he inherited a lot of talent, to be sure. Um, he talked about improving the culture, and I'm sure that did have some effect on on the season. I also think they just have a, be a better head coach in that chair, uh, and it's not all just about the talented roster anymore. But you're you're, you're so right. Um, we hear these coaches all the time when they're they're struggling to get to get momentum of, well, we're, we're laying the foundation and we're, we're, we're laying bricks for the, the success, you know, that's going to be coming years down the road. And we're, we're, we're building a brand. We're establishing our culture. We're getting our mind right. No, we, we've seen it done other places now. And particularly with the transfers that have immediate eligibility, you don't, you don't get four or five seasons to, to lay the foundation and establish your culture because we can we, we see firsthand evidence of other coaches, and it's not just LSU. Uh, you mentioned Josh Heupel at Tennessee. You know, I know Shane Beamer has not found the consistency that uh, I, I think you know ultimately they they'd like to see more of at South Carolina. But there's there's no question Shane Beamer's been an upgrade over his predecessor in Will Muschamp, and now you expect the bar to to maybe go up a higher notch. But he has been an immediate upgrade without having to cry for patience. And it puts pressure on coaches, well, like Billy Napier at, at Florida, John, who's coming off a six and seven season. I didn't think that was terribly surprising in year one. I know Billy Napier inherited a tough hand, but now in year two, it's time to win. You know, you might get you might get one season, but uh, as we've seen elsewhere in the SEC, whether that be Brian Harson or Joe Moorhead or uh, or others, you better you better win in year two now because we're seeing other guys win in year one or at the very least year two. Blake, I wonder if other administrators 
are, are taking notes on what Scott Woodward did. I wonder if they're saying, okay, we've got to be willing to make that big initial investment. Because you can't go hire a Kim Mulkey just by saying, hey, come on back to your home state. And she'll say, oh, yeah, nothing I'd love better than to come back to my home state. But I'll also want about three million bucks. You don't just get Brian Kelly to leave Notre Dame because he knows he has a better chance to win a national championship at LSU. You got to write that big check. And he did that. And to me, if I'm another administrator, if I'm another AD in this league, I see, I see what he's done. I see he went out and he was willing to get the very best coaches in those cases. I mean, he couldn't have got Gino Auriemma from UConn, but he got Kim Mulkey from Baylor, and he got, you know, he got Brian Kelly from Notre Dame. So I wonder if, if ADs are taking note of this, or do they say, well, LSU could do that, but we couldn't. Well, why couldn't you? I'm a native Louisiana, and I don't think of Louisiana as being the most prosperous state in the country, the most prop, prosperous state university but what Scott Woodward is showing and what he's telling his alums and his donors is we want to be the very best at everything. And that's going to take money, but it will pay off in the long run. And you're seeing that with, with fan interest, with fan donations and with people in the seats. I mean, just as remarkable as LSU's immediate success in women's basketball to go from nine and 13 to a national championship in two seasons. Look at the arena. Mm-hmm. It just, it, I mean, it's full. That shit sends a loud message. And I think it shows what it takes. It, you can take your chances on hiring somebody and feel like, you know, I got a gut feeling this is the right person. You can do that, but you might be better off just looking at the record and not not go by your gut, but go by the track record. You, you said it. I mean, did anybody really think Kim Mulkey would be a bust at LSU as a coach? Mm. No. No. I mean, no, nobody with a functional brain thought that. Uh, you know, I, I talked with Scott Woodward last year at the those SEC spring meetings just about his hiring philosophy and um, you know, whether he ever worries about overpaying for a coach. Cause you know, there may have been some concern, uh, with, with Brian Kelly got a, got a massive deal, uh, obviously one of the best coaches in the country, but you know, it was going to be a new challenge for Brian Kelly in the sec. And, and, and Scott Woodward said a couple things. He said, uh, number one, he said, it's always worked for me that the best predictors are usually past performances. Now, that's not groundbreaking stuff, right? But what he's saying there is uh, if he has the opportunity to go with the proven commodity, he's going to take the opportunity to to go with the proven commodity. And, and as for overpaying for something, uh, he said, you know, he, he hears that and he thinks it through. But he said, when people say, oh, maybe you overpaid for something, he said, on the other hand, maybe he underpaid. Maybe he didn't overpay because everybody knows the cost of what a coach is, Scott Woodward said, but do they know the value of that person? And I thought that was a very interesting 
comment. We all know the salaries. We know the cost to bring in a coach, but what is the value? And, and the other thing is with this hiring strategy, John, you're, you're very much embracing the upfront costs versus the back-end costs. You know, you're going to spend big if you screw up a hire. If you take a chance on someone, then you have to pay a big buyout on the back end. We've seen that at Auburn now paying the, the, the big whopper buyout to Brian Harson on the heels of paying the buyout to Gus Malzahn. Well, LSU is much more taking the approach under Scott Woodward of let's make the investment up front and, and, and spend big to get a proven winner. And then you don't have to worry about that buyout on, on the back end. Now, it could backfire. If Brian Kelly wouldn't have worked out, I guess, then you're you're left holding the bag and, and he's only entering year two. But you, you hire some of these people like Kim Mulkey and, and Brian Kelly, and there's there's a real good chance that it's going to work out and, and that your investment is is going to pay off. Well, you mentioned these payoff to payoffs to failed coaches. Tennessee has a has a long uh, uh, disappointing history of that. But you look at what happened at, with with LSU when Ed Orgeron, what did he get? Was it something like $17 million? That sounds right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So that that's a negative. You, there's a huge negative connotation to that, a negative image. Uh, the guy, fa- he won a national championship, though. You have to remember that. He did win a na- – you got a national title out of him. And – whatever good fortune that befell the program and didn't continue. So you make a sudden change and you pay out all that money, but look how much better you off, better off you are now. So it's not just you're willing to invest in another coach with a good track record. You said Scott Woodward bases everything mainly on track records. Ed Orgeron. Yeah. You had to pay him a lot of money, but you're better off doing that than continuing along that cycle because it's it's not going probably not going to get any better. So yeah, I yeah, think you can I, afford to do that once. What you can't do is fire Ed Ogeron and then roll the dice uh, on some coach and have that backfire on you in in two years and then have to do it again. And if it sounds like I'm talking about anybody there, that's that's Auburn. Um, but <laughs> I, but I they, knew you they've now the third around. time around that they're, they're trying to get it right with a, more of a proven commodity and Hugh Freeze anyway. Eventually, Auburn got it right. Eventually, I think Tennessee got it right with the Jeremy Pruitts and Butch Jones and Derek Dooley's. After all that, it got Josh Heupel. I guess if you roll the dice enough, <laughs> you you finally come up with a winner. But I like Scott Woodward's approach. And, and I just wonder how many other ADs now are going to use that as the model. You, you talk about track records. Well, look at Scott Woodward's track record at LSU. Why did he win? If you look at why has he been successful? It's not about how much money he's ra- or how many buildings he's built or how much fundraising he's done. It's about hiring coaches. And he spent a lot of money out to hire these coaches, but it's paying off. Yeah, and winning a bunch of games is one of the best ways uh, to, to raise funds, too. You want to you want the donations to flow in? Yeah, you got to be active and shaking hands and, and the whole bit. But uh, the best way to, to get people to open up their wallets a little bit is uh, to have coaches in place that uh, fans think can actually win something 
uh, with the money that they that they donate to the athletic department. John, is it, we're, we're recording this on a Monday afternoon. The national championship is tonight. By the time uh, you all are listening to this, um, the national championship game between UConn and San Diego State has already happened. But as we record this on a Monday afternoon, John, I am struck by most of the dialogue right now, most of the conversation on this day where the men's national championship will be played continues to be about that game Sunday, the women's national championship between LSU and Iowa. Now, the stage was set. You had um, the superstars on on the court, on the sideline with Kim Mulkey, but on the court with Iowa's Caitlin Clark. LSU has superstars of their own, including NIL Maven, uh, Angel Reese. Um, you know, and LSU's just, they got the band of, of transfers. Alexis Morris was, was big in the, the clutch. Jasmine Carson was uh, a, a hero in the first half when they were dealing with, with foul trouble. And, and the officiating was an eyesore, but I don't want to talk about the officials. That, let, let's put them aside. Aside from the officiating, it was a great game. I thought it was a great moment for women's basketball, um, and it was really an exciting tournament. You've covered this sport for a long time. You covered uh, Pat Summit during her time at Tennessee, and it just seems like the buzz around women's basketball right now is is at a crescendo. I'm wondering what you think uh, and whether you, you would agree with what some have said that in this moment, this is the, this is the best the sport of women's basketball has ever been in terms of product plus entertainment value. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I wrote a column today that was published today about how Pat Summit would have loved this uh, final four in this women's tournament because she was all about building the sport, not just building her program. Yeah, she wanted to win first, but she wanted the sport to win too. And the sport really won this time. And you brought it up, the value of star power. Uh, I mean, look, I know somebody that has never even watched a women's basketball game. And now she just happened to look up at a restaurant and saw Kim Mulkey on the on courtside and saw how she was dressed. And she said, well, that's who I'm pulling for. Hmm. Star power in the old, the old thing is, you know, you mentioned the officiating. Well, you could add a bad, bad officiating in some women's final fours. Nobody would have noticed. So everybody's talking about the sport now, and it's because it has a lot to do with star power. Certainly Caitlin Clark, because she's such an unusual, such an exceptional women's player. But just following the sport through the years, I think this is kind of its crowning moment. And I don't like comparing men's and women's basketball because they're they're two different sports. The women players can't do all the things the men's can do. They aren't as big. They aren't as strong, all that kind of stuff. But how much buzz is there about Connecticut playing San Diego State? Uh, and again no i mean (laughs) and i don't think that's just because we live in the south john i I think i think there's a lot of portions of this country where you could live in and and there was more buzz surrounding the women's finals even beforehand than you know as we record this on a on a monday then we're getting 
for the for the men's finals. And and, and the other thing, I, I think there were a lot of fresh eyeballs on the sport on Sunday during that women's final. Um, and and for the longtime watchers of, of the sport, I know you're one of them. Um, you know, some of those people that have watched this sport for years have been trying to say that this is a product worth watching. Um, and, and regardless of what you thought of that argument one way or the other, that argument didn't always ring. It didn't always have the results. You know, they did, they, they didn't always bring new eyeballs into the sport. Well, I think in this tournament, they did bring a lot of new eyeballs into the sport. The ratings for the semifinals were huge. I haven't seen the numbers yet for the finals, but I'm sure they're going to be huge. And I think the best thing for those longtime supporters of the sport was that the game delivered. You know, if, if, if all those new eyeballs would have watched on Sunday and, and LSU would have won in a 42-32 turnover-filled, you know, just mess of a, of a game with the bad officiating the whole bit, I think the new eyeballs would have said, what was all the hype about? What, what am I watching this for? Aside from the bad officiating, I mean, that game was a treat to watch. Uh, it, it really was. The Stars delivered. The winning team scored 102 points. Everybody hitting shots on both sides, brilliant passing cuts. I mean, it, it, it was it was just really, uh, as you said, uh, a crowning moment. I, I think you, you put it perfectly. And, and I thought the stage was set. And and give the athletes credit they 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 delivered a product that was that was worth their new audience's attention. And one one of the best things about it for women's basketball, Blake, is it these some of these stars are returning. Most notably, Caitlin Clark. I mean, to see her pull up and shoot a 30-footer. I mean, again, I said I don't like to compare men's and women's uh, basketball, but I flash back when I was a student in LSU and Pistol Pete was launching without the benefit of a three-point line. He just pulled up on a whim and, and shot. I, I mean range was no factor and it's that way with her she's not saying okay i gotta get closer no i'm shooting it right now i've got that feeling and boom so many times it goes in and i've never seen a women's player like her ever and my wife's watching the game. she's now a caitlin clark fan she's talking about we have espn plus watching iowa's games next season Hmm. just to watch her play because she does things that other people don't do. So, and you also have uh, LSU and some stars coming back from a national championship team. You have Kim Mulkey who will be even higher profile next season. Who knows what she might break out in terms of a wardrobe. And you have the Bayou Barbie, Angel Reese. I don't think she's going to become a shy between this season and next She's going to be outspoken. She's going to be controversial. All these factors. And then you add the fact that UConn, which supposedly had the best player in the country, and Paige Beckers, who's been hurt all year, she will return, as will Azzy Fudd, who would have been an All-American if she'd remained healthy. So there will be more anticipation over the next women's basketball season than any season in history. I really believe that. And Pat Summit would appreciate that more than anyone. 
Well, maybe we better launch a second podcast, John. The, the more I, the more I hear about it. No, we will, we will stick to football uh, about ninety-seven percent of the time here, and we will continue to monitor um, the SEC's debate over its conference schedule. Eight games, nine games. We should know uh, within two months' time, and and if they do to go to the eight, as as we said, um, it'll be curious to see come 2024 whether the playoff selection committee uh, will hold them accountable for that thanks for listening to this edition of sec football unfiltered just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left listen to where secrets go to die the disappearance of Derek hennigan From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.